Hello, and welcome to the third episode for May 2023 of your genuine slice of Dorset life, the BV podcast. I'm Jenny Devitt. And it's hello from me, Terry Bennett. And in this third episode, Jane Adams talks about the Dawn Chorus. Roger Guttridge tells the story of Dorset's first newspaper and those who distributed it. And we have Jules Bradburn, director of the Chabon Independent Market, on the subject of the brand new Shaftesbury Independent Market. And we hear of a local business punching well above its weight in the niche market of charcoal. May is the month when, arguably, the dawn chorus of birdsong is at its finest. Wildlife writer Jane Adams is one of those who's happy to get up early to hunt down a good place to hear it. And recently she went to Cranbourne Chase for just that reason. I asked her if she lived close by. Uh, No, it's about 20 minutes away for me. So it was... um, But actually, the whole reason we went there was because my husband's um, mother's ashes... We scattered them in a bluebell wood last year after she died and um, we'd gone back there during the week to sort of revisit it and the birds were so brilliant that I said to Andrew, my husband, oh, I'm going to go back and sort of listen to the dawn chorus. So I thought, oh, well, this morning seemed quite good weather-wise and I thought I'd go back and, and check it out. And what did you hear? Do you know, there wasn't... It wasn't as good as, as it had been about 10 o'clock in the morning. There was there was quite a few birds singing. I mean, there was all the normal uh, ones, the blackbirds and robins and everything, but I was expecting a lot more. There was a lovely blackcap uh, singing, but and the, all the sort of great tits and things like that. Um, but it was it was actually quieter than I was thinking it was going to be at five o'clock in the morning. So much for getting up early. I know, but I did. I did see um, hares, which I absolutely love. So I did make, you know, I, I took myself onto the edge of the wood and actually watched the hares for about half an hour or so. So it was well worth it. Is that a, a particularly good place for hares? Cranbourne Chasers, yeah, it's brilliant for hares. It's um, we don't we don't get them near us. Well, rarely. Um, so, yes, if ever I need a, a brown hair fix, I, I go over to Cranbourne Chase. Um, it's got the big fields and the sort of copses and woodland that they like to go into during the day. And then sort of at night they go out onto the fields. But you've got to get it so that you probably know this anyway. But when the fields, when the crops are actually quite small um, and haven't grown that much, otherwise you can't see them. But, uh, yeah, I found a field that was only just starting to grow and five five hair running, hairs running around after each other, or running after the female anyway. And is it, uh, Jane, is it normally a good place for the dawn chorus? I don't know, because I've never been there in that time in the morning, so I thought that I would try it, because it seemed like it should be a good place. Unfortunately, where I live uh, used to be brilliant, but in the last 10, 15 years or so, it's either I'm going deaf or the bird song is getting less and less. And I think it's probably the second, unfortunately. It's nowhere near as loud as it used to be. 
Although I think during COVID, there was a definite sort of increase in, in being able to hear the birds, wasn't there? And uh, I did make the most of that and went out and listened to the door chorus quite a lot because you haven't got any of the traffic around you as well. But I'm trying to think where one of the best places I've been for a dawn chorus. Um, I think it was actually, it was probably during COVID and I walked up to one of the nearby woods uh, where I live in Corfmullen and it was, yeah, that was a stonker. Tell me, which bird starts the chorus? Well, I suspect it's different for different people. For me, around here, it's nearly always the blackbird. Um, blackbirds will quite often sing in the dark, and we have a particular blackbird that likes sitting on the pitch of our roof and singing his little heart out at sort of four, half past four in the morning at the moment. Blackbird and then the robin is definitely the two that start up first around here. Uh, and the wood pigeons, we have a lot of wood pigeons, so you tend to get them as a sort of a background cooing going on with the leftovers of the night shift with the tawny owl hoo-hooing and quicking um, in the distance so we've got a, a pair of tawny owls around here so that's that's always quite a nice thing to hear at the dawn chorus when you hear the the night and the day and how how long does the dawn chorus season last well it can be dependent on the weather because the birds are very affected by the weather they birds like the song thrush can actually be singing very very early even in sort of december last year um, you would have got to, well, we had a, a song thrush singing its heart out in the morning and evenings and even the blackbirds so you've got certain birds that nest very early um, which the song thrush is one and the blackbirds another so I said I suppose you could say that it goes right from sort of January through to end of this month I would have thought that most of them have have finished trying to attract a mate which obviously is the the main thing that they're trying to do with the dawn chorus. Now, tell me, Jane, just why do they sing at daybreak? What's the what's the reason for this outburst of song just as it's beginning to get light? Well, I think they think that it's because they're obviously they're they're trying to find a mate, so they're trying to do that. They're also trying to defend their territory. And when it's still dark and barely light, they can't see to feed. So it makes sense for them to sort of sing at that time of the day. And you're not wasting too much time on being able to feed because you can't see very well. Uh, I think that's why they think that um, the birds tend to sing that, at that time in the morning. Mm, but, but whatever the reason, when you get a really good dawn chorus, it, it's just wonderful, isn't it? Oh, it can go right through you, can't it? I, I think it's a real shame if people have never actually experienced the dawn chorus because you might think that it's just a, oh, you know, just a few birds singing. But actually, if you experience a really good dawn chorus where you've got, I don't know, at least sort of six or seven different species of bird all singing their hearts out, there's something very special about that. And obviously... They're not doing it for our benefit and it's not very 
sometimes it's not very melodic because it's it's very confused with all their different songs going on but there's something really sort of I don't know it's a primeval I suppose it's sort of it really gets you it, it gets right inside you and of course the one little bird that makes more noise than any other for its size is the wren Yes, well, I suppose that is another one that um, starts quite early, along with the the blackbirds and the, and the robin. But yes, considering we quite often you don't see them in your garden very often, and yet they're one of the most numerous birds that we've got. And you know they're they're everywhere. It's just that they don't tend to come to well they don't come to feeders, you know, bird feeders in your garden. But oh my goodness me, their song! I mean they really. For the size of them, their song sort of outcompetes everybody, doesn't it? <laughs> I always think it sounds like a bit of a, a machine gun. I mean, it's a real da 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 da, -da um, as they're singing. But yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous song. Finally, Jane, what about the evening chorus? Because there is one, isn't there? As the birds get ready to roost for the night. Yeah, and I suppose it's for a similar reason. I suppose when it's getting dark and it's harder for them to actually forage for food. Um, they have another go at, at singing as well. So it's well worth sort of seeing whether your birds are singing. I know I went outside putting the bins out last night and they were definitely singing their heart out last night. So, yes, it's it's well worth listening for the um, sundown chorus as well as the as well, as well as the dawn one. I think one of the main things is that you don't need to be an expert you don't need to know what the birds are in order to enjoy it. I think it's it's more of the experience. And I'm not a, a madly spiritual sort of person, but just that feeling of being outside and just hearing all these birds singing at the same time, there's, there's something incredibly special about it. Wildlife writer Jane Adams on the Dawn Chorus. The Sherborne Mercury, Roger Guttridge, tells the story of Dorset's first newspaper and the Sherborne men who rode Sherborne to distribute it. I wouldn't want to worry any ladies of advanced years, but following a 20-year abstinence, no sooner did John Dillap resume his old drinking habits than his wife fell pregnant at the age of 68, or so the story goes. That story was perhaps the most eye-catching tale in the inaugural issue of Dorset's first newspaper, which appeared on the 22nd of February, 1737. Her pregnancy, tis thought, was chiefly owing to the plentiful quantity of whisky her husband lately drank, reported the Sherborne Mercury. They have had no child these twenty years past, for in the year 1715 the husband took an oath not to drink any of the liquor for twenty years, but the term being expired, he returned again to the use of it, and did not drink of it above a month when his wife was discovered to be with child. In a footnote, perhaps their tongues in their cheeks, the paper's owners promised that the recipe for his fecundifying liquor would be speedily published in the Mercury. The Dillaps lived in Omar, Ireland, and the tale was the nearest thing to a local news story in that four-page first edition of the Sherborne Mercury, or weekly advertiser, to give it its full title. 
Most of the editorial content in the early years was political news from the capitals of Europe, copied verbatim from the London papers. A notable exception was a story on the famous raid by smugglers on Poole Customs House in 1747. The reporter was barely able to disguise his astonishment as he described how, at 2am, a numerous company of persons unknown, armed with blunderbusses, pistols, swords, etc., came into the town, broke open His Majesty's Custom House there, and forcibly carried off a large quantity of tea, which had been lately brought in by the swift privateer, who took a smuggling vessel. They told the watchman that they came for their own, and would have it, but would do no other damage, and accordingly did not. The Sherborne Mercury was founded by London printers William Bettinson and George Price, although Price's involvement was short-lived. London papers had been around for a hundred years, but the provinces had to wait until the 18th century for their own titles. The Salisbury Journal was launched in 1729. The Mercury had no illustrations apart from decorative artwork around the masthead and descriptions of Mercury and a galloping postboy on the earpieces. The paper was printed in Longstreet, Sherborne and sold for tuppence, a quarter of which went in tax. Short advertisements were invited at two shillings and sixpence, with bigger ones in proportion. The Mercury offered good encouragement to any industrious, honest men of villages near Sherborne that are willing to carry out this paper. The job was not without its hazards, however. In June 1737, the Mercury shared fears that distributor James Arnold was either dead or come to some misfortune after disappearing along with his papers on the walk from Sherborne to Taunton. A reward was offered for information. Two years later, hawker Richard Carrington died on his way to Warminster and his customers were asked to send their respective debts to the widow Carrington at Sherborne. The paper's distributors were known as Sherborne Men, and their occupation as Riding Sherborne. They made up for the lack of local news in the Mercury's columns by word of mouth, giving rise to a West Country saying that described a gossip or newsmonger as a regular Sherborne. In 1742 and 43, the Mercury included a 206-page history of Somerset in weekly instalments, though whether the paper had permission to lift it from the Somerset pages of Thomas Cox's Magna Britannica, 1720-31, is unclear. Plagiarism was commonplace in those days. In 1744, Bethinson found himself facing serious competition when the enterprising 24-year-old Robert Goadby launched the Western Flying Post, or Yeovil Mercury. The post was distributed deep into Cornwall, with Goadby appointing correspondents in every notable town between his Yeovil base and Falmouth. For a while, the rivalry was acrimonious. After Bettinson died in 1746, his widow Hannah continued to publish, but eventually sold the business to Goadby, who moved his whole operation to Sherborne and merged the papers to become the Western Flying Post, or Sherborne and Yeovil Mercury. The first combined edition appeared on the 30th of January 1749 and declared it was now the most numerous and extensive paper in Great Britain. It included a rare front-page illustration featuring the forthcoming Hyde Park fireworks that would mark the recent Peace of Aix-la-Chapelle. It was a challenge too far for the Sherborne printers who placed the outer sections of the woodcut the wrong way around so that the clouds failed to line up. The paper continued to be known as the Mercury, and it dominated local news and advertisements for more than a century. Samuel Drew, 1765-1833, the son of a Sherborne man in Cornwall, said it was the only newspaper known to the common people. 
there were branch riders in different directions who held a communication with each other and with the establishment in Sherborne, he said. My father's stage was from St. Austell to Plymouth. He always set off early on Monday morning and returned on Wednesday. The Mercury saw off many rivals, an exception being Crutwell's Sherborne Journal, launched in 1764 by printer William Crutwell to challenge the Mercury's Whig affiliations. Crutwell survived a bankruptcy threat in 1776, and his paper stayed in his family until 1828, remaining independent until absorbed by the Chard Union Gazette in 1841. The Mercury, meanwhile, was itself finally bought in 1851 by the Yeovil Times, founded four years earlier by John Noke Highmore. This, in turn, was absorbed in 1867 by the most formidable rival of all, the Western Gazette, launched by Charles Clinker in 1863. By the time I joined the Western Gazette as a trainee reporter in 1970, it was Britain's biggest provincial weekly paper, with a circulation of 77,500. Sister paper Pullman's Weekly News added another 14,000. The owners of today's paid-for papers can only dream of such circulation figures. Shaftesbury has a new artisan independent market. The first of these was held on a Saturday earlier in May and will be held, if successful, once a month on either a Saturday or a Sunday, whichever works best. It's being run by Jules Bradburn from Sherborne, who's in charge of the very successful monthly Sherborne Independent Market, held on a Sunday in that abbey town. I spoke to Jules Bradburn, who said that the experimental first Shaftesbury Independent Market went very well. Shaftesbury, you can't get it wrong, can you? It's so beautiful. We had uh, about 55 stalls up on Park Walk, so looking over um, the beautiful views uh, from Park Walk. And then we had a few stalls on the high street because it was the first one. We were a little bit nervous about the road closure, buses going through, delivery drivers. But now we know what the roads are like on Saturdays. So we'll be expanding down the high street. Uh, and was it was it busy? On it the was Saturday really morning? busy, really busy. Um, the footfall exceeded what we wanted, so we were really pleased with that. So we had nearly 6,000 people come through for the first market, which was incredible. That's very good. That's, very, a, that's very a good, good sort of figure. Now, it, it, I'm kind of assuming that for a first, you would get lots of people pitching up. Will, yeah, well, will you hope I'm, that it won't kind of... I'm hoping it'll be constant because we had so many people coming along saying we didn't know this was on today. So uh, we were doing lots of leafleting and, and letting people know. So I think as it builds, people will come along. But there's a huge tourist trade in in, uh, in Shaftesbury. So uh, a lot of people are tourists. I spoke to people from um, California. I spoke to people from Germany. I spoke to people from all over. So it was really nice. You mean you have an international draw? <laughs> well, clearly. <laughs> but the chap from California, he was so interesting. He'd been walking the South Downs Way. Popped into Shaftesbury because he'd heard how lovely Shaftesbury was and was blown away with the market traders. He bought a great big picnic lunch, pints of English cider. He thought it was just brilliant. So. Now, does Shaftesbury have the, I can't think that it has the equivalent of um, Sherborne's Pageant Gardens, where you have food it, stalls and mm, uh, music, you know. And the, the, it the, doesn't at the moment, but there is a, a park that's just been refurbished at the bottom of Shaftesbury. So it links in through Park Walk, then you can go down the hill at Park Walk, then there's a, a newly refurbished park, which is beautiful. I think it was just reopened last week. So the long-term plan is Park Walk, High Street, uh, down Gold Hill and into, into the park. But at the moment, we've got music outside uh, the Guildhall, and then this month we'll have music outside the Guildhall and outside of the Abbey. 
on pop court. So if you weren't fit before, you yeah, you will be. <laughs> you will be afterwards walking up and down those hills. <laughs> yes, because uh, especially Gold Hill. Which yeah, is... Gold Hill is um, yes, it's fine on the way down. The way up, no. <laughs> so, so, so what? Uh, now, is this going to be like the Sherborne one once? Uh, Eventually, I mean, it's... once once a, a fortnight. Yeah, it's uh, once a month, and at the moment it's on the second weekend of the month. So at the moment, uh, we're trialling three Saturdays and three Sundays to see what works best. Um, I'm really conscious that there are lots of Saturday markets quite locally. Um, so does that impact on our trade and our traders? Um, and Or does Sunday work better? Um, so there's obviously no buses on a Sunday, but do we then make Shaftesbury a Sunday destination? Which, I mean, Sherbourne's grown and grown and grown. And we started with 3,000 people. Uh, the last market uh, last weekend we had nearly 8,000 people through and 200 stalls so we've gone from 70 stalls five years ago to 200 now uh, and incredible footfall so I'm hoping <laughs> long-term Shaftesbury will and be the how same. many how many stalls uh, in Shaftesbury uh, for the first one we had 70 stalls uh, for the next one we've got a few more and still lots of people booking in um, traders are always a little bit nervous about a new market um, so now the word has got out how lovely it was, you know, how the, the vibe was very similar to uh, Sherbourne. Um, people are more willing to book in. So as it builds and builds, we'll get more people. Now, would you prefer a Saturday or a Sunday? Um, personally, I think that Sundays work better. I'm always really nervous when you've got a road closure uh, about things like deliveries, um, because shops depend on deliveries. <clears throat> and if you've got a, a, a national store, you can't really say to them, well, don't have a delivery on a Saturday. So we don't have those types of issues on a Sunday. We don't have postal deliveries on a Sunday. So it just um, clears the road from all traffic uh, on a Sunday. But we'll assess it. Um, maybe Saturdays work better uh, in Shaftesbury. Maybe there's more footfall on a Saturday. Um, we've just got to assess. We spoke to the businesses, the traders and customers um, and we've done a poll um, so we're just working out what the results of that um, are. Does it work for the businesses? Does it work for the traders? Does it work for the people that have visited the market and what's their feedback? So we'll take all of that into consideration when we're planning uh, for 2024. So what was the reaction of the, the existing Shaftesbury shops? Um, really positive, really, really positive. Um, there's a, a really big concern in Shaftesbury about parking, but we arranged private parking for our traders so they didn't use uh, any of the, the high street uh, car parks. Um, so that worked really well. Um, I didn't hear any complaints about parking um, from customers that had come in. So that worked really well. I think the businesses are generally very pleased to have a nice vibrant market in the town that will eventually over time bring people into town. Uh, and maybe people will visit on a weekday, not necessarily when the market's there, uh, which is the effect that we've had here in, in Sherbourne. So we're hoping to be able to replicate that. And, and if, uh, as I think happens a bit here in Sherbourne, doesn't it, on a Sunday, uh, th there's always the possibility that some of the regular shops will open their doors on a Sunday as well. Yeah, I mean, the problem we've had in, in Sherbourne, it's not a problem, it's a wonderful problem to have. The market is now so successful, all the shops want to open. And of course, we don't put a market stall outside an open shop because it defeats the object. Um, so we're actually losing pitches because the shops want to open, which in essence is a great thing. That's really good. That's what we want. Uh, we want the trade to go into the local stores. Um, but it's really problematic when you're planning where your pitches are going.
But we'd love that to happen in, in Shaftesbury. I mean, we're very, very lucky in Sherbourne that the shops turn over really quickly here. A lot of our market stuff, well, I say a lot, uh, four of our market traders have taken on shops here in Sherbourne because they've been so successful at the market that they've now got permanent stores. Um, we really hope that that can be replicated in Shaftesbury because um, Shaftesbury has a much longer high street and a slightly different makeup uh, to Sherbourne. But long term, who knows? Maybe some of our traders will um, look at Shaftesbury as a, a place to rent a shop and, and start a, a favourable business in town. So. And, and Jules, uh, did you find that some of the traders who have a pitch for the Sherbourne Sunday market uh, to take up a pitch or will take up a pitch? Oh, yeah, Shaftesbury? absolutely. And the, the first Shaftesbury market was two weeks ago. We had Sherbourne market this Sunday. And, you know, all the traders get together and they have a good chat between themselves. So on the, the Sunday market, so many traders said, oh, I heard Shaftesbury went really well. Can we book in? Uh, which is exactly the effect that I wanted to have. So, um, yeah, we'll have a lot of our Sherbourne traders going to Shaftesbury, which is great. And, and these are all local traders. Or, or actually, local. how far afield do, do um, uh, I think, draw? I think our furthest person comes from Plymouth. Uh, which is quite well, a, drive. a drive. It is a, it is a bit of a drive. Um, most of them are uh, Somerset, Dorset based, and we've got quite a few Wiltshire based. So they're all local. They all have their own businesses where they make things themselves. And we've got some incredibly talented people. Uh, we've just got a new chap called Plant VOQ, and he makes incredible terrariums from old greenhouse. Uh, pains and they're just stunning so you can have really small ones so so many talented people very out there. good recycling very very good recycling we love a bit of recycling very good recycling but also incredible food artisans we've got loads of great food um, lots of very talented people that make jewelry and glass items and clothing and we've got a great collection of vintage clothing as well so we've got more and more vintage coming along um, so yes it's great we've got something for everybody hopefully but but of course Jules it's really great for the 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 individual craftsperson or a food, food person to have another outlet for yeah. their for their talents and it, which is wonderful just to encourage more and more local uh, artisanship yeah and they, they're really keen to get the word out because it's not just about making sales at the market it's also about promoting yourself getting your website out there and we're contacted by so many people after a market saying, oh, I saw a stall that sold this. I didn't pick up a card. I wish I had. Can you put me in contact with them? Um, and that's great because it's building those connections with businesses. But also it's worked the other way. So we've had, we have um, Dunya, who I'm sure you've come across. Uh, she had a, a stall that was one metre by me, uh, one metre at the uh, first market that she did. Uh, with just two trays of, of baklava that she'd made herself. She was convinced she wasn't going to sell any. Uh, she sold out by 11 o'clock. Uh, but now she's supplying baklava into the cafes in town, which is great. And she, she'll be in Shaftesbury as well? She's in Shaftesbury as well, yeah, absolutely. Um, she, she came with us uh, for our first market day and she, again, sold out. So uh, the things are really well received and people like something that's a little bit different. There are no baklava suppliers that I know of in, in Shaftesbury. Um, so, you know, you've got... Especially you've got genuine Syrian. Oh, beautiful. It's beautiful baklava. So, uh, yeah, she did really, really well. Jules Bradburn talking about the new monthly Shaftesbury Independent Market, not to be missed. The call of the charcoal. Jim Bettle makes a living from an ancient craft, fueling his passion for a more sustainable country. Tracy Beardsley reports. Jim Bettle's lively eyes focus on the smoke winding its way skywards. 
He's reading it, looking for a deeper colour. Above the chatter of woodland birds, he listens for the sound of fire. A sudden, thunderous roar, and he springs into action, peering up the portholes of a huge circular steel kiln to see how far the fire has spread. He expertly manoeuvres a massive circular lid. I can't help but think of a giant's paella dish. Over the wood-fired kiln, propping it so the fire spreads before he dexterously drops the lid. Then he slots four tall chimney pipes into bases around the kiln. Now he's cooking, and will be doing so for the next 16 hours. It's this year's first burn in the woods for the Dorset Charcoal Company. Jim's in-tray is a neat stack of 300 cubits of ash, sycamore and oak, cut from the private Jewish woodland that will be his office until the end of August. In that time, he'll produce more than 35 tonnes of sustainable British charcoal. One of the very few British charcoal producers, he's the biggest in Dorset. I've got seven kilns based on models dating back more than 200 years. As we hit the busy season, I'll constantly have two kilns going, producing about half a tonne daily, explains Jim. Nothing is wasted, every size having a use. Bigger pieces are bagged up on site to sell as barbecue fuel, while finer grades go to the cosmetic industry as an environmentally friendly replacement to the now thankfully banned microbeads. Jim's charcoal even features in blockbuster movies. His powder was used for special effects in the latest Star Wars film. The Dorset Charcoal Company is accredited as a sustainable supplier to TV and film industry by the BAFTA scheme We Are Albert. His charcoal enhances equestrian and cattle feed. Adding biochar to feed reduces cows' methane emissions by up to 18.4% and is also a diet supplement for dogs. His biochar horticultural additives, an ancient way of conditioning soil, help to retain both nutrients and moisture, improve drainage and soil microbes. Finally, after shouting from the treetops, the penny is dropping and we're finding sustainable alternatives, says Jim. Charcoal is natural. We've used it for thousands of years. The symbiotic relationship makes such sense. We can create a sustainable wood fuel with carbon dioxide emissions 95% lower than gas or oil. It's absorbed back into the soil and nourishes trees. He gestures to the woodland around him. Managing this coppice allows flora and fauna to thrive. I hear more birds and insects as we open the wood and let light in. I'm completely driven by producing a sustainable product that has positive effects in the environmental chain. The call to a career in charcoal came more than 25 years ago. I got my degree but quickly realised a suit, tie and job in the city was not for me. After some time spent backpacking, Jim took a variety of rural jobs. A throwaway comment from a master thatcher I was working for, there's a future in charcoal, was the first seed sown. I went to Glastonbury Festival, now one of his clients, and rather than take photos of the stars on the pyramid stage, I took snaps of kilns. Living and working on the Drax estate, the charcoal call came again when the estate forester looked for a charcoal burner. Over a bottle of wine, a plan was hatched, and in 1996, Jim began contracting. He went to the Greenford Trust in Telford for training in woodland skills. I also travelled around the country learning the ancient craft from the old boys. I started making my own charcoal at weekends and in 1997 gave up my day job and launched the Dorset Charcoal Company. Now, 25 years on, he's proud to have four employees and seasonal summer workers, my woodland pirates. And it's not just his own business in Dorset. 
I wear the charcoal hat for the National Coppice Federation and lobby government to regulate charcoal imports. The scale of waste is madness. The UK imports over 100,000 tonnes of substandard charcoal annually made by ravaging tropical rainforests. And don't get me started on the shipping pollution to get it here. Quickfire questions. A-list barbecue guests. Well, my wife Nancy, the UK's Environment Minister, it would be good to have her here, ex-US presidential candidate Al Gore, and scientist James Lovelock. Oh, and Shane Warne. I'm a keen amateur cricketer. Book by your bedside? American Dirt by Janine Cummins. It's a brilliant novel about a Mexican migrant family building a life in the USA. And you can find out more on dorsetcharcoal.co.uk. And that brings us to the end of this third episode of the BV podcast for the month of May 2023. Terry and I will be back again in June with another great mix of tales and items from Dorset. Until then, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. 